And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. The race is on, and while things started badly in Las Vegas, Max Verstappen took a dramatic win on F1's big night. But was it a missed opportunity for Leclerc and Perez? And did the event live up to the hype? I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to answer those questions and more are Scott Mitchell-Mown and Mark Hughes. Well, Scott, we'll come to you first. It seems a very long time since we were sat here talking about our early impressions of Las Vegas. It's been quite a weekend, hasn't it? It has. It's been a long one, partly because um, nobody quite knows what day it is in the F1 paddock. Um, I think uh, I know every now and again we can be guilty of uh, sounding a little bit cantankerous on this podcast, talking about our late finishes and whatnot. But I felt like we were all kindred spirits in the F1 paddock this weekend. I, I don't remember a time, I don't remember a race where everyone has just been simultaneously fatigued to high heaven like they have this weekend. Everyone seems to have been operating on five or six hours sleep a night. Jet lag's been terrible. The schedule's really weird with the really late starts. And it's been been a weird one. And then obviously you've got the the fact that we were running Wednesday through Saturday instead of Thursday through Sunday. So it's been a strange and quite long week, but it it was worth it. We went through a lot of trouble early in the event. But we got to a very, very good place by Saturday night when it was a it was a very good Grand Prix. Yeah, absolutely. I think it worked uh, pretty well from uh, from our experience of it. And although it was a bit of an odd one, yeah, ultimately it worked roughly as a Grand Prix weekend should. And Mark Hughes, what did you make of it all? Um, I covered it from UK, which meant going to bed at early doors and getting up at sort of four a.m. Um, or even earlier, um, and then. Uh, <laughs> It was a bit of a blow on that first day when nothing then happened for hours. But, uh, yeah, so it, it, even even covering it from here, you still had to get into a funny time zone, but it was fine. And it was um, it was nice that it was rewarded in the end by a cracking race. Should point out that Mark is trolling us at the moment by sitting in a room with a window behind him that clearly shows it's daylight, lovely and bright there. And I think we've had probably a grand total of about 90 minutes of sunshine or sunlight each day because of the weird time zone out here. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny. It's actually ended up being worse than Singapore. Singapore, you at least get some sunshine and day, but it's just a bit weird. I don't want to complain about it too much, but it just has been. A- yeah, it's not been. It's not like it's not that it's been like utterly terrible and like we're all feeling rubbish. It's just it's just been quite strange. It, it is. It's been a unique experience on 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 the ground. Yeah, definitely, and uh, I think there'll be some pressure from some teams to try and change that. But I think it's necessary for the event to to work to run on these uh, these timings. But it was utterly baffling to be watching an F1 free practice session at 3.30 in the morning in the middle of a major city. I, I just remember saying to you, just what what is going I on? I think we were just sort of conversing through the practice session, just gradually the time would in, the, like the time was getting later and later. And we were just like, Ed, it's 2.30 in the morning. There are cars on track. What's going on? It's three o'clock in the morning. It's five to four. Why are there cars on track? 
<laughs> but it's kind of appropriate. Las Vegas is a strange place and it's uh, it's definitely a place for all-nighters. So I think we've had the experience that many people have at Las Vegas of not sleeping much and uh, ending up uh, fairly drained at the end of it. But ultimately a successful event. And we'll get on to talking about the wider event in detail later on because there have been so many questions from the Race Members Club about uh, this event and how it worked, etc. So we'll focus initially on the on-track racing because despite what Max Verstappen said about it being 99% show, 1% racing, the racing was actually pretty good. So Mark, while Max Verstappen took that inevitable victory yet again, both Charles Leclerc and Sergio Perez were in the hunt. So there's plenty for you to get your teeth into here. So how was the race won? Well, it was all on the the second safety car. Uh, if it wasn't for that second safety car, which ironically was partly triggered by Verstappen himself, uh, the race was almost certainly going to be won by Charles Leclerc. And uh, the uh, the safety car that well, it was George Russell's fault, the, he just hadn't realised Max was, was already there and, and just turned in. Um, but it, it, ironically, the, the the debris from that created a safety car, which allowed Verstappen to come in, get on the new tyres, um, and Leclerc had only five laps earlier put his new tyres on. So he didn't come in, and on the restart, Leclerc just couldn't get the tyres back, you know, up to life. And um, it's much harder to do that Um even with a set that's only done a few laps like that, than it is a brand new set, especially on a track as cold as it was. And so, yeah, that was it really. There was the, um, the, the, the trap was set and uh, there were there were ways that um, Perez may have been able to win it. He, he was able to pass Leclerc quite, you know, a few, a few laps after that uh, restart. And had he been able to... Um, do as Carlos Sainz did in Singapore and, and, and use the DRS to uh, use Leclerc to keep Verstappen off his back. Perez could conceivably have won it, um, but he he he, uh, he misunderstood just how late uh, Leclerc could break into turn 14 in the Ferrari and just let him get a little bit too close and lost the lead. And once he lost the lead, he was then with his bigger wing, uh, vulnerable to Verstappen as well who came past on the following lap and who was then able to uh, just clear off past Leclerc in the DRS zone, and that was it. It was home and dry. But up up until then, up until that had happened, um, Leclerc was four places ahead of Verstappen on, on tyres five laps newer, and one of the cars in between them was Sainz. So, yeah, Leclerc would have probably won that race quite quite handily, I think. Um, but that's, yeah, that's just how it played out. It would be like a roulette wheel. Yeah, how appropriate for Las Vegas, although for most of the casinos we walk through, which you can't avoid walking through, they seem to be mainly electronic slot machines and that kind of thing, not so much uh, real uh, roulette and blackjack and all that kind of thing being played. But anyway, related to that, Mark, there was a question from Christopher Parrott from the Race Members Club. He just said, why was Lickler able to go so deep into the turn off the long back straight versus the Red Bulls in particular, obviously, that late pass being the, the highlight by Leclerc to take second. Yeah, the Ferrari is very, very good on its front tyres, um, and that's particularly valuable on a track which is um, A, very cool, and B, um, is, is slow corners, long straights into slow corners. And the, the Ferrari is loaded more uh, towards the front than the Red Bull, and it is just naturally a a very, very good car in, in those sort of conditions, in those sort of uh, slow corner um, direction changes and, and braking, it, it's very, very good. It, it um, Ferrari uses the the, the, the way a car dives 
uh, under braking um, as, as part of its aerodynamic map. And it, it, it does give the car very good bite in situations like that, whereas the Red Bull's got a more even balance between the front and rear, which is why it's usually so much easier on its tyres because it spreads the load between the two axles rather than concentrates them on one, um, which gives benefits globally, but in certain situations like that, it's not as good. How did the two of you see Leclerc's defence against the two Red Bulls at different points in that race? Because it struck me a little bit like um, often how you see uh, Lewis Hamilton um, defend a position, which is to fight it, but not, you know, fight it to the absolute death. I felt that Leclerc could have covered the inside line fully both times against Verstappen and Perez, but it was almost like it was it was almost like he felt well, there's no point in me going tight tight to the inside on the dirty bit because then they'll have momentum and just sweep around the outside of me on the brakes and it just felt a little bit like Leclerc being that, that, that Hamilton-esque kind of a just play the long game like I might be able to come back at them I might not but I, I don't see that I'm really going to hold, hold the position here either way really I think that's what it was and I think also he'd already um, the win it took Perez six laps to get past him um, you know after the restart but he did it eventually by, you know, making Leclerc defend and, and use up the battery. So it was a bit defenseless in the DRS. And so he'd already experienced how that was going to play out if he just, you know, just did it in a one-dimensional way and just, just blocked as, as soon as the car appeared. I don't think that was going to work. And, I, I, yeah, I think he was just being more tactical in, in, in his driving. I, I felt that this was one of those races for Leclerc where you look at it on paper, obviously, it's a it's yet another pole position that hasn't been converted into a win. And you see moments in that Grand Prix where you think, oh, could he have done more here? Could he have defended harder? Obviously, he had his mistake where he, he ran wide. And it's one of those races where, on the one hand, you think, oh, maybe Leclerc could have done more. But then you look at it and you just think, Charles Leclerc could have absolutely not done anything else in this Grand Prix. He was absolutely excellent. And then that that overtake, obviously, to get it on that last lap was just... I just felt I just felt it was pure and peak Leclerc, you know, a mega mega performance through qualifying to be on pole position. He's you know revels in a street track yet again, and yeah, it's an imperfect Grand Prix. That hundred percent never relenting kind of driver. I feel like that's where those little mistakes do come from. But it's also what got him back the position against Perez, isn't it? So it just felt like the the quintessential Leclerc performance up against the dominant Red Bull. Yeah, Leclerc's actually on a really good run of form after that little period where science got the initiative after the break the clerks had a strong run actually even though as he pointed out uh, last time out he can be a bit unlucky as well so he was unlucky again with this one in a race he he might have won but scott let's talk about the first corner chaos because verstappen's pass on leclerc earned him that five second penalty you talk us through that and what did you make of it yeah so um verstappen got a, a good launch and um was able to attack leclerc into turn one but he was on the dirty side of the uh, of the track, and it was always going to be difficult to get that that move done. But Verstappen had almost uh, he'd half he'd he'd half tested this move on Esteban Ocon in qualifying, uh, sending it down the inside, run it in 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 deep, get the move done. But the overtaking qualifying was actually a little bit neater. Verstappen carried way too much speed in, ran Leclerc clean out off the road, and ran off the road himself. So this was slam dunk. It wasn't within the the realms of the usual first lap first corner even tolerance um it was a clear clear cut case of forcing another driver off the track so it was the right to get the five second penalty but obviously there are yet again we're here talking about the limitations of the five second penalty because a five second penalty in which you um you 
okay, it wasn't traded off in the conventional sense when we talk about it because he didn't just drive up the road and pull six seconds clear, take the five-second penalty at the stop and still rejoin ahead. But it meant he spent his entire first stint in front of the Ferrari being able to look after his tyres rather than running in dirty air. Now, had Leclerc been in front in those early laps, we can't say for for certain that Verstappen would have been stuck behind him for the whole stint. He might have been able to use the straight line speed advantage and 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 the DRS and 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 got past and it, and it would have been a moot point anyway. But he was a, he avoided having to worry about that and having to do something. He made his first stint a lot easier by doing that move and then choosing to stay in front because for the last couple of seasons we've had this system whereby there is no intervention from race control. They don't say to the team you need to give that place back, otherwise it goes to the stewards. It's down to the team and the driver to decide. Red Bull's never going to tell Verstappen to 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 relent and give a place back because they the team probably knows he won't listen. So we heard Red Bull tell Verstappen, it's up to you. And Verstappen was like, well, obviously I'm going to stay in front for now. So it, it, it it's another it's another case, I think, of the five-second penalty not quite being um, appropriate because I, I don't... It wasn't an egregious offence necessarily for Verstappen insofar as he got penalised for it just like he deserved a penalty for it, but the five seconds wasn't enough. It's just hard to work out what you actually do when the system doesn't allow you or the system just is how it is so that race control doesn't force him to give the place back because that would have been the right outcome, but that's just not a thing that we do anymore. Yeah, I take that point. But on the other hand, that five-second penalty that she served in the the pit lane while the field was still compressed did lose them, was was going to lose them the race ultimately um, because it, it brought them out all those positions behind Leclerc. And he was going to have to use his tyres up to get those positions back, and Leclerc was going to have disappeared. So in that case, because he'd overworked his tyres on the two restarts, one from the VSC and one from the the first safety car, he'd had to make that early pit stop, and the field was still very compressed. So in this case, that five-second penalty was actually pretty punishing, and he may have been better advised actually to have just swapped the place back and try to do to Leclerc what Leclerc did to him, which was force him to run very, very hard on restarts and and, and just run longer. Um, it may not have worked out that way because, as we touched on already, the, the two cars have got very different traits. But I think in this case, um, it did hurt him. And he was only rescued from the potentially race-losing effects of it by the second safety car. Yeah, I think you. I think you are right. In this case, the way it eventually played out, it was... Punishing. I guess my issue in this scenario is, well, I, I like, and I'm not blaming Verstappen for doing it because I think any driver in that situation is going to make that choice to just crack on in that first stint. But I guess I dislike the fact that you can you're allowed to make that trade in the way the way that the rules work. You should. I, I don't think you should be allowed to put yourself in that position because he gave. I guess my point is that he gave himself the opportunity, didn't he, to cancel out that that penalty in the first stint. He didn't, and I, I and I'm glad he didn't. Um, but yeah, it's just something that. It's another thing that exists, isn't it? This this sort of weird grey area in the way that we've got these overcomplicated um, rules and, and and punishments. Yeah, I think you can certainly say that from Verstappen's radio message when he was told about it, he had decided that was the right move. Whether it actually was is kind of irrelevant because he felt it was. So that was what they were thinking about. So it's, yeah, just again, that that's something they need to look at and they will, I think, consider how to change things for next year but of course the first corner Verstappen wasn't the only one to get caught out there was that oil that was put down on the driver's parade on the left side of the grid so that made life difficult for anyone starting on the left side of the grid Gasly complained about it Carlos Sainz 
blame that for his moment when he uh, he went just didn't have any front end when he got to the first corner and and uh, hit uh, Lewis Hamilton I think it was and he just said well I wasn't even being particularly attacking on you it was going to be a problem because of that oil but it was just no grip just as soon as he touched the brakes he was in trouble we also saw Fernando Alonso in trouble and we should probably throw in at this stage Mark this question from Christopher Wicks from the Race Members Club who says after another uncharacteristic spin by Alonso going into turn one today at what point do we see this string of errors as a trend and at what point will that trend be attributed to his age (laughs) Uh, coming just a week after that sensational performance in Brazil I think um, it's probably not the best timed question but um, it, the actual error is, if you like, you, you know, he, he, he moved to the left because that's where the space had opened up and it would have been ridiculously illogical not to move to the left. And that took him through that um, oil slick that we've just been talking about where Sainz had no front end as soon as he touched the brakes. That's just what happened as he tried to turn in on, you know, with with tyres having gone over that, just looped around. It was a very... Lazy spin was, you know, wasn't um, it? It wasn't done through trying a, a, a crazily optimistic move. It was done through, you know, just being in the wrong place on zero grip, and uh, the chaos ensued. So no, I, I don't see a trend, and I certainly don't see um, age as a factor um, in, in, in Fernando's performances at all. I think um, he's absolutely still at his peak. Alonso was absolutely baffled about that spin when I spoke to him um, after the race. So I asked him to explain it, and he was he just like really couldn't. He was like he was like he was so confused by it. He thought he might have even ended up sandwiched between two cars, and maybe had like contact that he hadn't felt or something like that. It was such a strange one. It reminds me of the kind of spin that um, people have when they play racing games or something for the first time. And they, you know, when they just pile into the pile into a corner and like leave the brake on for too long and just like the rear loops round and it's all a bit, it's just, it's a really, like, I think you said it was lazy, Mark. It was really cumbersome. It was just like, it sort of, he lost it in stages (laughs) and it was just, it was just, it showed the lack of grace that these cars have. Yeah. I mean, even as he's putting the opposite lock on, it wasn't doing anything because it was just zero grip at the tires. So it didn't matter what you did with the steering. It was just going round. And I think at this point, we should probably take a visit to somewhere we haven't been for a while. Scott Valtteri Bottas, Sympathy Corner. Started seventh. What went wrong for him? I, I said, didn't I, just before just before the start, I said, I wonder, um, I, want, I'm, I said, I'm looking forward to seeing how Valtteri converts this good position on the grid to somewhere much worse. Not necessarily through his own fault, but just because he's he's so luckless. Like there always just seems to be something that goes wrong for him, and I didn't mean it in a in a sincere way. In that you know, oh, I can't wait to see Bottas's race get ruined, but it's just like a, it's almost like um, like Gallo's humour, almost, isn't it? With uh, with, with Valtteri and, and and that team for, for for a good sort of twelve months or so. So now, like, I feel like if that man didn't have it, it didn't have bad luck, he'd have no luck at all. And I think he kind of sees it as a bit of a, what am I meant to do? At this point, because just every time you want to catch a break, there is like even even this weekend, like great qualifying performance was kind of in overshadowed by the fact that the two Williams were in front of him. So any other time a Sauber's seventh on the grid is brilliant, but when there's two Williams is on the third row, it's a nightmare. So yeah, he just he had nowhere to go. Um, the car looped around in front of him. You can you can imagine. I, I remember we see, seeing it on Bottas's onboard, and just as as the Aston does that, just horrifically slow loop round. You can just imagine the way Bottas is just sort of thinking, just sort of like, no, 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 no. 
what's going on? And there was an amusing bit when he sort of gathered it all up, wasn't it? Where he just, I don't know what it was, whether it was like the release of the clutch or the gear that he was in, but he almost like, he stops, doesn't he? But then he just sort of like nudges forward and just hits the, the Aston for good measure. It had the air of just, oh, <laughs> why is this? I must admit, Valtteri Bottas' sympathy corner is very apt this year because he has actually had quite a bit of bad luck this year. I think he's been one of the more yeah, unfortunate drivers on the grid and there was nothing he could have uh, could have done there. So yeah, frustrating day. And he ended up spending basically the whole race down the back, didn't really get anywhere. But uh, yeah, well, it's good to have an excuse to go back to our, our favourite Bottas-related place. Though. Absolutely. On a weekend as well where the, uh, the Alpha was genuinely competitive and for the first time in... Well, first first time this season that we've seen that car not massively punished for being super draggy. Yeah, well, they've made some little improvements as well. They had a, a tweak rear wing as well, which seemed to be a little bit more efficient as well as giving a bit more downforce if needed. So that was positive for Alfa Romeo. But yeah, that, that team things just haven't quite come together for this year. Even when they've had their shots, very often things have gone wrong quite early in races. So that's a little bit unfortunate for them. And uh, yeah. Just uh, just the kind of season that Valtteri Bottas is having. Let's quickly catch up with the Race F1 Cup, which is our bit of social media-based fun for the final part of the season. Max Verstappen's long since been crowned world champion, so we pitched the rest of the field pretty much into a World Cup-style competition with the semi-finals played out based on the results of the Las Vegas Grand Prix. So, Scott, can you do the honours and announce the results of the two ties? Yeah, so the, the first round was actually na- quite narrowly uh, decided, um, and... Against all odds, after his grid penalty, Carlos Sainz progressed against Lewis Hamilton, finishing P6 to Hamilton's P7. That was after Russell's grid penalty was applied, of course. And then the 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 shock result, the upset, Pierre Gasly uh, proceed, uh, progressing at Lando Norris's expense. Now, when we did the draw for this and thought, right, who's going to finish ahead in Vegas, I don't think anyone would have uh, would have suggested that Gasly would have been the one out of those two that that went through. But obviously, Norris um, uh, exited this Grand Prix in quite spectacular fashion very early on with a fractional fractional but very costly misjudgment over a horrible bump. Um, I think he might have just been marginally offline. That just meant he hit that bump in a horrible way. Car went light, rear came round, fishtailed into the barrier on the right hand side, and flew down the escape road into retirement. So it meant that even though Gasly had a very disappointing Grand Prix, given how well he has been performing lately and how brilliantly he qualified and the fact, I think he was just screwed by strategy, uh, just ended up on the wrong one. Um, he limped home to a pointless 11, but it's enough to to go through. So it's Carlos Sainz and Pierre Gasly in the final. Yeah, a shock appearance in the final for Pierre Gasly. Nobody saw that one coming. Of course, that means Sainz is going to be the overwhelming favourite. You can follow progress in the Race F1 Cup on the platform formerly known as Twitter, and that will be decided on the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Let's talk a bit more about Carlos Sainz now, Scott. Stephen Davies asked a question about something that was quite a big talking point throughout the weekend, actually, after the early problems with that uh, water valve cover popping up and doing a little bit of damage to several cars, but chiefly Carlos Sainz, obviously. And Stephen asks, Formula One and Liberty Media are pushing F1 to be a great sport and as entertaining as possible with the sprint race, a different format to Las Vegas race. But giving Carlos Sainz a penalty for a problem caused by their track is not at all sporting and entertaining. They can't seem to get the basics right. Why couldn't the rules be overruled for such a unique problem? Everyone is hiding behind the fact the FIA or stewards couldn't find a way around the rules. Why isn't there someone who can just apply some common sense? Do you think that he should have been let off? I think he should have been, but I don't think he could have been. I think think that's the difference. And, And the stewards felt... The stewards wanted to let him off as well, but the problem there is, I get, I, I understand the point, Stephen. I, I, I really do, and it is so frustrating when you have a show like this that is then undermined it by such a bizarre penalty, an unfair penalty, and I, on, I honestly can't think of a, I can't think of a less deserved penalty in in recent years. N- none, none have sprung to mind, and I've really, I've really tried to think about it. But the problem is, is that if we start with the kind of common sense argument, the case by case argument you just end up opening a horrible can of worms because then everything, everything is going to be potentially open to force majeure or common sense or whatever you want to call it. You'll have teams that are going to be chasing the stewards left, right and centre for exemptions from penalties for, for all sorts of reasons. And ultimately, it's not hiding behind the fact that they couldn't find a way around the rules. It's just that the stewards decisions because of everything that's at stake and the process that follows it's it's a legal matter because it will go that that that's how the process works that's how the that's how the original framework is that's how the whole system is based around so the stewards have to have a completely robust decision that they stand by because if they don't it will get protested or go to the international court of appeal and it will become a a, a proper a, a proper legal matter and so if you don't have a cast iron position from the steward inside your decision is going to be up for debate and they there was a little bit of i think of slightly misleading narrative around sort of what exactly mercedes supposedly did or didn't do in this regard there was no vote or anything like that to let signs off but i i, I am fairly confident that if the stewards had invoked some kind of um supposed force majeure in this scenario, Mercedes absolutely would have protested. I'm sure they would have because as unlucky, as absolutely outright unlucky and unfair as it was on signs, 
interference in a fight that's worth so much money for second in the championship, which is what it would be, it's just not something that can be tolerated in the bigger picture because, like I say, you open this horrible can of worms. Yeah, that's the big problem. It's down to the wording of the rules and teams will push and try and take advantage if there is an allowance for that. They'll talk about that. Fred Vasseur was saying after the race he's going to really push for that rule to be looked at. But yeah, the phrasing is the key. What do the rules say? That's what the stewards have to judge it by. They can't just say, oh, well, this is what we think should happen. It'd probably be nice for there to be some mechanism that works. But uh, yeah, just one of those things. And I'm sure that uh, there'll be plenty of talk about that. Fred Vasseur did say he was uh, probably going to have some uh, some private conversations with the uh, the race promoter which is, of course, effectively F1, given it's, uh, given it's Liberty Media and F1 doing it, about uh, the possibility of some form of compensation because uh, he did feel there was some liability there. He was talking about the fact that, that yellow flag was out for quite a long time before science hit it and that perhaps it should have been red flag given they knew there was some problem on the circuit. So, yeah, there's an interesting little case study that could lead to some future change. Let's talk about George Russell now, Scott. He was once again disappointed after the race, which seems to be quite uh, quite common in the second half of the season. Fifth on the road, but was relegated to eighth thanks to that five-second penalty for causing the collision with Verstappen. Without that and the safety car timing, he felt he was on target for a podium. So what's going wrong for him? And does he just have to hold his hand up on this particular incident? Yeah, he does. And, and, and he... He did in a way, to be fair. He said, um, you know, he he didn't try and hide and, and claim that, you know, Max had dive-bombed him or done something wrong. He said he was Max was in his blind spot. He had no idea he was there. He, he turned in and, and hit. I mean, I, I would have thought given that, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't like Max sort of sprung it from absolutely nowhere. So it kind of felt like Russell should have known Verstappen was at least close and, and likely to, to try. I can understand why it then happened the way it did, like that the, that contact in that exact kind of motion and that place through the corner. But it was George's it was George's misjudgment ultimately. So the in, in it's a very different example, but much like it was in Singapore for, for uh, as a, as a different case study, or even Canada where he obviously slapped the wall very badly there, ended up. Uh, was able to continue but continued in traffic and that then contributed to a secondary problem that ruined his race so what's going wrong for him this season all sorts of things he's just having one of those seasons where where lots of different factors are kind of combining and he's having lots of bad things happen in in one go so if if this season if you removed his errors from this season this season looks a lot better if you remove remove a couple of strategic howlers from this season his season looks quite a bit better if you remove a really unfortunate engine failure in Melbourne his season actually looks a big like a a bit of a chunk better as well so there's all you you could take out any one of the specific groups reliability team performance Russell's own mistakes and make a reasonable chunk difference to how you view his season but you put all of those three together and it's a nightmare that's why he's so far behind Hamilton. It's why some of the results look as as bad as they do. Yeah, exactly. And he's got the air of someone who's a little bit frustrated with the whole thing because he was having a nice strong weekend here and he's probably thinking, oh, I can get on an even keel. And then yeah, things all yeah went awry. But uh, yeah, that seems to be happening to him a lot. Mark Lewis Hamilton had a tricky day, started in 11th place, finished 7th. What do you make of his clash with Oscar Piastri? I thought it was just two racers going at it, really. And it was just a little rub of tyres really and it was just um, unfortunate that they both got punctures from it and then of course he didn't um, 
he said it didn't puncture straight away or he didn't feel it until he was past the pit entry road, so that delayed him massively, of course. Um, he made some good moves on his you know, on his way back, on his comeback drive. Um, he was uh, out of position in qualifying. He didn't get the tyres up to temperature because of where Lance Stroll was relative to him on the outlap, so it's very, very easy to lose the tyre temperatures on this track with not many quick corners and very low track temperatures. Um, so, yeah, that set the tone of his weekend, really. And, uh, yeah, it was, the, the Merck was reasonably competitive at its peak, and I think had he had a representative weekend and had George had a representative weekend, um, they could have been up, you know, probably featuring in that that battle at the front. Not that they were as quick as the Red Bull or the Ferrari, but they weren't that far away. And, um, you know, with with the way the safety cars fell and things, they, they they could have been involved in it. So it was a shame because it was one of the Merck's more competitive recent outings. Yeah, and Toto Wolf said it pretty much summed up their, their season, the fact that things just didn't really, really come together, even though there were some half-decent results on the table there. And Scott, talking of Piastri, he was fourth for quite a big chunk of the race. So did McLaren have reason to regret that decision to put him onto a second set of hards at his first pit stop? Um, yes and, and no. There was obviously, there was a degree of circumstance, well, not more than just a degree actually, of how circumstances drove um, Oscar's uh, Oscar's race because uh, obviously start, starting on, on, on hards, the timing of any safety car, virtual or, or, or four is is going to be a, a, a potential um, stumbling block, especially because other other drivers the opportunity to change onto um, tyres, and then obviously they needed to pit before um, they intended to because of the the contact with with Hamilton, and I don't think they would have, um, yeah, I don't think they would have had any, any luck if they'd switched to the mediums at that point and, and tried to go to the end. I mean, Andreas Seller just described it as. A bit of an unf- it was always going to be a bit of an unfavorable race for someone who started on the hard just the way that it um the the way that it played out and it was a shame because he drove superbly a couple of the overtakes were absolutely stunning and it was quite funny like uh, uh Stella said when Stella was describing um or trying to describe uh, one of Piastri's moves in particular I think the one on Gasly and um, he just basically described it by um, blowing out his cheeks and raising his eyebrows. <laughs> just sort of thinking, oh, we thought it was a bit close on the pit wall, but when you actually saw it, he, he got the job done. Uh, really nicely executed, and I think he deserved more reward for the quality of this drive. Yeah, again, <laughs> just frustrating because he could have held forth had he not been forced to pit to use the two compounds, just one of those things. Landon Norris had that crash. What was the final situation? Because he was taken to hospital, wasn't he, for checks? He was, but the checks were all negative, so all good. He was uh, he was discharged quite quickly. I think by the time we were speaking to Stella after the race, which was about 45 minutes or so after the Grand Prix finish, maybe an hour, um, Lando was discharged from the hospital. So, yeah, all good. It was um, it was the one of the bumps in, in, in the track through that corner. Like I said earlier, just... Um, made the made it unsettled the car the rear went light and um he was a passenger from that point onwards it is it's ultimately a mistake from lando because it will come down to like a tiny bit of car positioning or something like that while following someone else maybe a bit too close didn't take leave enough margin it's very harsh to describe it as a mistake because it feels like the kind of crash that could have happened to anyone it just so happened to happen to him so yeah i have a, i have a lot of sympathy but um 
the main thing is he's okay because it was a very, very violent impact, the first one in particular. When you see the car fly down the escape the, the, the escape road, you always fear the worst with that one, but that, that bit always looks a bit more dramatic than it really is. It was the one, the first impact into the wall, I think, was the one that hurt. Yeah, the way the car bottomed out, I think um, we may have been looking at the influence also of low tyre pressures on a heavy fuel load. You know, it was just well, a lap after a restart, wasn't it? And um, yeah, the, the, it did did have the look of a car which had um, ground its floor out and then, you know, lifted the car up momentarily. Yeah, always the risk when you have those sorts of uh, situations. Also, Alpine, interesting afternoon for them. It kind of went in opposite directions for for the drivers because Pierre Gasly was initially in a very strong position, but ultimately finished only 11th. Esteban Ocon took fourth place from 16th on the grid, so his day gradually got uh, better. So how did that happen? Yeah, I mean, Ocon, he he drove um, some good um, early laps. And by lap 10, he was only like three places behind Gasly, who held his position. Uh, but it, it all went in different directions for them after they um, after they stopped and went onto the hard tyre. Uh, I think Ocon just brought them in a lot better. I think maybe Gasly, you know, he was, we talked about that dice he was having with uh, Oscar Piastri. He was involved in a couple of other dices as well, apart from the one he, he subsequently had with Esteban. I think it probably just overworked the tires too early on a you know when 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 you do that they they won't come back and he basically he ran out of grip by the end and he just sank like a stone in the last few laps so I think that was it that was the difference whereas Esteban had, had a more you know he brought the tires in a bit more progressively he didn't get involved in early dice he wheeled the wheel dices so much and I think that was the difference um the car was pretty reasonable this weekend yeah, and Gazi had performed very well in qualifying. He wasn't confident going into it, but yeah, really strong performance. But yeah, he, he complained about the the graining that that led to falling back. Just couldn't get out of that uh, that struggle. So uh, ultimately, though, Alpine got a decent result, fourth place. There's nothing for them to fight for in the championship, but good for them to have a, a half decent result. Scott Lance Stroll took his second consecutive fifth place. Lonzo was down in ninth after his first lap. Error sets up an unlikely grandstand finish in the battle for fourth in the Constructors' Championship, given there's only an 11-point gap to McLaren now. So how surprised are you by how close that fight is now? Uh, I am quite surprised on one hand because the performance of the McLaren does outstrip that of the Aston Martin, regardless of obviously the the fact that the Aston does look more competitive again, um, as we talked about in Brazil. But... I'm also not surprised because um, there's been very specific circumstances that have clearly dented McLaren's um, ability to con- convert that performance into points. Um, they had a missed opportunity in Brazil, obviously, with only one car scoring points in the Grand Prix, as um, Piastri had, uh, through no fault of his own, um, that that incident at, at the first corner where he was rear-ended and that led to him spending the entire Grand Prix a lap down. And then here they made the team made a mistake in in qualifying with the way that they handled qualifying, which set them up for a tough Grand Prix. And then Lando had his crash. Oscar was unfortunate with the circumstances. Maybe McLaren could have played that better. Maybe the medium would have held up in in hindsight. Maybe he wouldn't have needed that second set of hards. It is very difficult for for us to say. But the, the point is, is that Aston have got it together just as. McLaren have missed some opportunities so that that's why I'm not totally surprised because the gap was small enough for if something like this ha- to happen it 
it was it was small enough for it to be okay. Aston could get back into the picture quite quickly with just one or two hauls. That's exactly what they've done, and now it's game on. Now it just comes down to a single weekend's execution. Reliability could be a factor. Luck could be a factor. Driver mistakes could be a factor. So Aston Martin absolutely in with a fight of stealing back fourth in the championship. McLaren should see it out. But you can't rule Aston Martin out. Yeah, and it's good for them that Lance Stroll has picked up a bit recently. Like I said, back-to-back fifth places. It wasn't a stunning weekend. He had a little bit of fortune in the race, but ultimately drove a decent one, got a good result out of it. Lovely first lap. Yeah, yeah, as as is often the case for, for Lance Stroll. So it's nice that he's got onto a bit of an even keel again after that really, really tough run because it was it was pretty pretty hard for him. And okay, he's not pulling up any trees with his pace, but nice, well-executed race, solid weekend, two in a row, good. Yeah, job done. And I spoke to him on the third, uh, well, the Wednesday, sorry, uh, before this, and talked a little bit about how he sort of picked himself back up from from Qatar, which was the obvious low point. Um, and it was just quite interesting. You know, he, he sort of said for a while, hasn't he? Like, he, he, he I think he, he just got impacted much more negatively than Alonso as the car got, got weaker it wasn't just weaker in performance relative to the others there were obviously some car characteristics and handling traits that went away slightly it wasn't as easy to drive and Lance didn't ha- just didn't handle that as well as Fernando did but he felt that w- like when or if the car came back to him and he felt that confidence again he would start scoring the results again and, and yeah in Brazil he was very fast in qualifying it made the most of the opportunity there he wasn't quite as quick as Alonso in qualifying here and 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 lost out but his race performances in both those grand prix have been been really good exactly what Aston Martin needs and if he now does something similar and scores points again in Abu Dhabi i think he's um he's close he's he'll he'll have closed out the season in about as good as as good of a run of form as he had earlier in the year. Yeah, and I think he probably needed that after that uh, that tough time. It's good to go into the winter with a, with a decent finish. And yeah, he's playing his part in Aston Martin having this this run at getting back ahead of McLaren. So yeah, positive for him. Mark Williams, duo Alex Albon and Logan Sargent were fifth and sixth in the first part of the race. Albon only dropped out of the points with about 10 laps to go. So what happened to them? Yeah, again, it's this, this business of how you bring the tyres in after the safety car. And if you'd... If you'd pitted just before the safety car, either you were really disadvantaged because you weren't going to pit again. And then you, they, you had to, you know, the tyres cool down and you have to get them back up again. And it, it, like the difficulty that Leclerc had, but um, a little further back. And yeah, they, they just weren't able to to get the temperatures back in a time. Once once you do that, it starts to grain. If you, if you can't get those temperatures, they, they begin to grain. And then the way sort of goes off the scale and by the end of the race they were just out of rubber simple as that and they were just um yeah falling back very rapidly weren't they but um i think it, it purely comes down to the the timing of their first stops and, and how that was unfortunately timed um, regarding the second safety car and unfortunate for logan Sargent as well because he had a good run through the first two days of the weekend made it to q3 had his best qualifying performance he's really happy with those two days he did start to lose a bit of ground early on. I think on about lap 13, he uh, just fell out of Albon's DRS and then got passed by a load of people and that undid his race a bit. But it's the Williamses are always going to be just sort of hanging on. It was one of those, as we've seen often, Albon's driven those races where he's been hanging on. And you said, well, he's done really well to do that. But it's so, so easy when you're kind of walking that tightrope just to slip a bit and then suddenly several cars are past you, particularly on this track. So... Uh, 
a gently positive weekend for Sargent, but a bit of a shame it wasn't a slightly better race. But it wasn't too bad, all things considered, I think. It's not always the case that just because somebody started six and they slipped down to pretty much finish nowhere, that doesn't necessarily mean they've been uh, they've been awful. But yeah, just one more race for him to uh, to convince Williams to keep him on. He's looking in pretty good shapes. So there's not that many alternatives, but still not certain. We'll get back to the pod in a moment, but first, a word about our partner, Grammarly. No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing, and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at Grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Well, as always, we'll round off the podcast with questions from the Race Members Club. To join, it's just £24.99p for the year, and you get the chance to submit your questions for our race review podcasts and get plenty of other bonuses, such as exclusive podcasts. Your support is very much appreciated. Scott, the first question to you from Jeremy Husted, who says, based on the tenor of negative stories from most outlets, despite the improvements after day one, do you believe there was a concerted media effort to smear the image of the Las Vegas Grand Prix? <laughs> I, uh, I don't know about that. What I will say is that I believe that there were some people who were quite ready and willing to stick the knife in to this Grand Prix um, from an early stage. And I don't know for the exact motivations of that. I know that um, I know that a lot of us were frustrated at the sort of relentless positivity. Well, no, not even positivity. The relentless shoving down the throat of how brilliant this race was going to be, that it was going to set new standards, that it was going to be the best thing any of us had ever seen. Mark, was it the best thing you've ever seen in your life? No, it was pretty good though. Ed, was it the best thing you've ever seen in your life? Not the best thing. But yeah, it was decent. Yeah, good. And And to both of you, isn't that absolutely fine? Isn't it absolutely fine that we just had a really good Grand Prix and quite an entertaining event around it? Totally, but that wouldn't make much of a pre-marketing package, would it? <laughs> it wouldn't. It wouldn't fit in with the uh, Liberty Media era bombast, would it, around races? But so, I, I think- but I really think it does sum up the problem that they did the dismiss sprint races and all sorts of other things. That they always descend into this sort of imitation of a totalitarian regime kind of thing. Okay, they're not imprisoning anyone, but just clamping down on it. And it's like, actually, you have done something really good yeah. here. But don't react so sensitively to any kind of criticism because I think I think that's what led to some of the pushback. But anyway, Scott, you're answering this question before I interrupted. <laughs> no, no, I'm going to wound him up and watched him go. It's brilliant. Um, yeah. So, so what my point is is that I, I think I think some people were were, were irritated in, in in one sense. So therefore, you have a little bit of like, well, you're going to give the situation short shrift if it then goes wrong. But also, we had spent all of that time being told that this was going to set new standards and be brilliant. And when they failed at the first hurdle by having to red flag practice after eight minutes because there was a big problem, and then they then handled it awfully 
with the communications and the tone was all wrong and they just they just missed the point of everything basically for about 12 hours of how they dealt with the fan experience and whatnot. It was just, a, for a lot of people, it was just, I think it was just frustrating. So um, I think I think everything after what happened in practice and the hand, like kicking out the fans and the extended FP2 and blah, 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 I think all of that was valid. Criticism around that was completely valid. But there was definitely, as Jeremy alludes to, this, this sort of constant undercurrent of um, negativity and just not spitefulness as such, but just... Yeah, it felt like some people just wanted to have something to complain about with this race. It that race is not for me. It's not for you, Ed. It's not for Mark. It's probably not for pretty much everybody listening to this podcast. It's for certain people on site. It's for wealthy partners and blue chip um, companies. It's for the city of Las Vegas. It's for the hotels. It's for F1. It's for Liberty Media, and it's for F1's growth in the United States. Hopefully, if it's successful. So, if there's a bunch of stuff there that I don't necessarily like, but works for all those other parties. I kind of just take the rest of it on the chin. There were things around the edges that I would like it to improve in the future, but I don't need to list all of those right now because I suspect we're going to come into that in a little bit more detail. We certainly will. But next, Mark, there's a question for you from Jap R, who says, in hindsight, wouldn't it be a much better idea if F1 built a brand new fantastic circuit in the desert near Vegas and just did a driver's parade and after party on the strip? Well, I've just seen a fantastic race at the... The new circuit. Um, so five overtake changes of lead. So amazing battles through the field. You know, it, 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 it can, races and venues can excel in different ways. Some, some are about, you know, the, the, the ultimate challenge of driving, like Suzuka or Spa or something like that. Others are about the quality of the racing, and there's room for everything. And I don't see why we should be imposing, you know, one one set of values on and saying that's it and nothing else no, nothing else should fit i think there's room for everything i think this is a really good you know a good um, new event yeah plus you've got that element um with something like this where a handful of proper destination races through the year so that they don't become you know the so so that they remain the exception rather than the norm and they feel special I think that's fine. And I think it's really good for a world championship to have that. And you don't get bigger destination races than this because that's you, you wouldn't have had that if you had a, a permanent circuit out in the boonies somewhere. Because Daniel Ricciardo said this, like when the Las Vegas Grand Prix was announced, some people probably thought it would be out by like Las Vegas Motor Speedway or something like that. No, no, no. This was this was proper Las Vegas, the heart of the of the city, incorporating the strip. It was we said about this, didn't we, on our, our the last podcast? Ed, like you could not fail to get a sense of the occasion, and we obviously saw it on television from even the media center and stuff like that. But actually, like just very briefly, Mark, like how impressive did it look? Follow because you were obviously following it in, entirely on television. How impressive did it look? Yeah, it did, and it, it looked. Um, I mean, it, it looked impressive in a similar way to Singapore does at, at night time. So you know it. It, I'm, I'm guessing that the experience of being there is very different from being at Singapore, but um, visually it worked very well. Yeah, I think it ticks a lot of boxes from uh, from that regard. The next question, well, it's two questions actually that I'll, I'll split up. Come from regular questioner Jack Aitken, who says the time and days. This that Jack Aitken exactly, our Jack Aitken. 
The times and days of this event have been held on and been perfect here in Australia, and I've been glued to all the sessions. What was the reasoning in scheduling the track action so late in the evening? F1 wants to expand in the US, and I don't understand how running sessions that are in the very early morning for much of the country help achieve this. Did the empty grandstands during FP2 show that too much emphasis was placed on capturing the European TV audience? Well, it wasn't about that. It was just pragmatism in terms of what Las Vegas wanted. They wanted the running to be late, but it had to be condensed as well in terms of how long the roads were shut for. It's that kind of big-time boxing slot. Effectively, it works quite well for, for Vegas sports. So that that's why it happened. Uh, ultimately, it, it wasn't really a good time zone for anyone, really. Because Scott, for example, you came from Europe, from Sweden. You flew in. So you've been on European time and flew in. It was bad. Don't I know it. I'd been in uh, in LA since the previous race. So I was in the right time zone, but didn't help me at all. So uh, so from that perspective, all the times are weird. And it's it, it's like a big compromise for everything because this was all about making Vegas happen. Didn't matter really about the rest of the world. They'll watch whenever, I think was the idea. But it was what worked for this city because they had to bend over backwards to be accommodated. And yeah, that was felt to be a uh, that was felt to be a worthwhile trade-off. The second part of the question, I'll throw it you, Scott, from Jack Aitken again, who says, I really enjoyed the podcast last week during which you spoke about F1 promoting this Grand Prix itself and the eyes of all the other promoters being on this event. How true this observation proved to be. After FP1, nothing was posted on F1 social media pages for hours. And once they finally did resume posting, they didn't even acknowledge FP1 whatsoever. I didn't see many words of apology on the night and fans who'd spent thousands on tickets were only later offered $200 retail vouchers. Did FOM do enough to take proper responsibility for Thursday? No, no, emphatically not. I think there were about a thousand words worth across the various statements. Not a single one of those was sorry. Um, we know we know the reasons why. It's because they can't take, they can't be liable for it. They know that they'll, um, as soon as you admit liability, then um, you run the risk of not only having to comp everybody for their um, tickets, but also I guess you could end up finding yourself being sued for, um, for you know fl- uh, flight costs and hotels and all all sorts of other things. So Liberty were Liberty F1 led the Las Vegas Grand Prix are all protecting themselves, which is understandable to to a degree. But I just felt that a lot of it was super tone deaf. Um, you don't need to have an apology and a statement to avoid putting the line in. It happens. That sort of thing is unacceptable. It's insulting. Um, I found it to be a middle finger to the people that were at the track just on Thursday. The Thursday tickets were the, by some way, the the cheapest available because obviously it was the least important day of running in terms of only being practice. So for some people, that would have been all that they could have afforded. And those people do not matter less than the people that turned up for three days on a three-day ticket and still got to see some track action. And if F1 is sincerely arrogant enough to think that a hundred people, five hundred people, a thousand people, five thousand people, however many were only there on Thursday, don't actually matter, then the championship's got massive, massive problems. Yeah, exactly. Fundamentally it wasn't a problem of the track having the having the issue. Yeah, we all that understand wasn't, that, that wasn't that good. Happen. And the knock on effect and the fact they had to throw people out because they couldn't staff in terms of security and there were transport issues and that kind of thing. You can understand how all that happens. It ideally shouldn't have done, but it did. And actually, they reacted quite well to it. And it's good. They got that 90-minute session off. But yeah, the communication around it in so many ways, even the way they announced, they they said the fan areas would be closed. And 
that wasn't very clear to people and people being basically marched out of grandstands just before the session they'd worked for hours. So it, it, that, that was all the stuff that didn't need to happen and just, yeah, they, they, they shot themselves in the foot with the, with the comms. It just, it, 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 made, it made me angry and, it's, and it makes me angry thinking about it now because just, it's a slightly different example, but like my, my, my dad and one of his best friends, they, they, they save up every year and they go to one Grand Prix that it's you know it's something that they look forward to all year. They put a lot of a, pretty much all of their expendable income goes goes on this trip. Get on the coach, go away for a few days, and they go to the track. Now they are there for several days. So if you did lose one day, you would still go back back for more. But I I know I know how much those those trips mean to my dad. I know how excited he is. I know that it's everything he looks forward to for a year, and I know how much it would upset him and hurt him if he lost any of that or and if he lost the whole thing and there are some people who went through that on that Thursday and that that's why that it that sincerely upsets me and angers me and and it just it needed to be taken more seriously than it was it just felt like those people could be brushed aside and I, I don't think that's fair yeah there was far too much we've done a great thing getting this race to happen and yeah you have but then <laughs> You've done, you failed to do something that you had full control of in terms of the way you did the comms. There was obviously lack of contingency planning and working out what they did in advance. So, yeah, I'll be interested to see what uh, repercussions there'll be from that. Mark, a question from Jacobus VDL, who says, has the rest of the Las Vegas Grand Prix weekend been enough of a spectacle to blank out the black eye of day one? Yeah, um, putting aside the, uh, the the issue with the, the fans on, on Thursday, yes. I think um, the, the event itself was... It was as successful as a, a spectacular, you know, as an event for like a showbiz event, but it was um, also successful as a sporting event. In fact, it was one of the best, if not the best, um, races of the year in terms of the, the competition on the track. So, yeah, I'd say very much so. it, it, it has. And a question now I'll take, which you've already partly tackled, but we'll, we'll go through it, from Andrew Wilson, who says, from the shambolic communication regarding the FP2 start time and the decision to make it behind closed doors, Toto Wills comments the poor response from F1 regarding Thursday's events and lots of local opposition to the race. Has this weekend been a PR disaster for F1 and a slap in the face for the fans attending? We've probably said, yeah, it was a bit of a PR disaster the way that was dealt with, and it was a slap in the face for the fans. And I think that's just the the one disappointing and if we connect that to did it wipe out blank out the black black eye of day one no matter what happened in the rest of the event I think there will still be that effect particularly as Scott was saying for those who were here on the ground and just yeah it's so frustrating that there was an own goal <laughs> and and we can't and we can't just pretend it it brushes us like it doesn't fix what happened on Thursday and, and that's the key thing now is that that it, that it doesn't it doesn't get played that way, is because because it would be very easy now to move on and say, yeah, this this event was a success, and it, it was. There were lots of things. I'm more than happy to talk positively about it and and, and how it worked, but yeah, it, it just it, what it cannot be allowed to be is an excuse to just sort of shuffle what uh, shove what happened on on Thursday under the under the carpet. Yeah, you can't just get to the finish line and say, well, the rest of it was fine, so that's completely eradicated it. Uh, anyway. Next question, Scott, for you from Gareth Jenkins, who says, yes, there have been issues, and yes, it would be great to hear the word sorry or refunds from F1, but as a major event organiser myself, legal tangles and the admission of fault can lead you down an even bigger path of trouble that makes doing the simple human touch hard. But the work and effort put in by everyone is obvious, and like it or not, it is part of what the commercial lure of F1 needs, so a profitable future which in turn employs thousands of people across the teams and more. 
So where do we stand if the reigning world champion who started his digs at the event for its glitz and glamour before he even got there and have kept turning the volume up won't play ball? He gets a big payday thanks to the sport's success and sometimes you have to play the game along the way. He never made a noise like this when we went to Saudi, Qatar or China for what goes on in those countries and one might think many would be more concerned about their human rights records, the additional lights and jazz of Sin City. World champion on track that I respect, yes, but one of the worst ambassadors the sport has had and that is sad. Max Verstappen, of course, this is about. Yeah, uh, uh, it is about Max. Um, Max was very, very honest and probably a little bit over the top in his criticism. And I say over the top in the sense that I think he slightly over-egged his own position on this. I think it came from a sincere place, but I think he was laying it on quite thick at times just to make sure his point got across. And I have a suspicion that it, this is more than just him railing against the Las Vegas Grand Prix and these events. There's a little bit of uh, other stuff going on in the background there because I know that he is... Uh, quite um he's quite selective about you know how much marketing he wants to do he doesn't like he doesn't want to be famous Verstappen does not want to be famous he just wants to be a racing driver unfortunately you know your tens of millions that you earn a year have to come from from somewhere and I don't see him voluntarily handing any of that back in return for um a little bit more of a a quieter life um the one the one thing I would say from what uh from what Gareth points out there is I I, I completely understand the point uh, the the first points about why it is a difficult situation to be in, and, and I do have, um, I do have a degree of of sympathy um, for that. The one thing I would say is that when it comes to where Verstappen says this and why he says this, it's because it's not because he thinks that this is worse than those uh, uh, countries with bad human rights, terrible human rights records. It's because this, it, and I think there's a degree of sort of Saudi comes into this, but. Um, his target here are the races that he thinks are less about races and are, like he said, 99% spectacle, only 1% about the sport. That's, that's, for, that's the real target of Verstappen's ire with, with these events. He, he just wants, like I said, he's a racing driver. He wants to, he prefers classic tracks. He doesn't like street tracks. So this was always going to be kind of the worst of all worlds for him. It's a street track, a uh, place where, it's all about, or a lot of the build-up is all about the the razzmatazz. And his suspicion was it wouldn't be a particularly fun track to drive in a good race, and there'd be all these distractions as well. So yeah, I think this is always going to be in Max's firing line. Next question for you, Mark, from Timothy Junes, who says, Ed Straw alluded already to the issue earlier. Formula One is its own promoter for the Las Vegas Grand Prix, and F1 loves to be critical of other GP organisers when it goes wrong. My home race at Spa is under permanent semi-threat to get axed from the calendar. Monza got slammed for a poor fan experience last year, and now they experienced how hard it is to get things right. Will F1 be more understanding next time something organisational goes wrong? Brackets, I'm afraid not. <laughs> yeah, how, how do you... How do you answer that? I don't know. Maybe it's uh, been the events of Thursday. Maybe um, when they reflect on it, might be uh, a humbling experience. It might, um, yeah, might give them a more of an insight to the the challenges faced by promoters. But um, yeah, I think the the drive to improve will will always be there, and, and they'll put it on themselves as well as on the other promoters. Yeah, I'm sure they'll certainly react to it. They probably are more willing to be forgiving of the circumstances because it was their event. But uh, several promoters were quite excited about the prospect of F1 seeing what it was like to be on the other side of the fence. And I'm sure a number of them will refer to what happened here when there's uh, discussions around their own 
Grand Prix. Next up, a question from Yap11, who says, the manhole problem is not the first time it's happened in F1 on the street circuit. How is it possible that they overlooked it? Complacency, bad management, wrong priorities? The organisers are patting themselves on the back. Should there be in that spend of $500 million or so some budget for this? Or is all the spend on the show? Well, yeah, it shouldn't happen. But it was the first time the track had been run on properly by racing cars, by F1 cars in particular. They thought they dealt with it. They obviously hadn't. They did rush to give the final approval to the circuit. Doesn't necessarily mean that that would have been spotted. I think there were some limitations on how aggressive they could be with sealing them, although they then later did that, which worked fine. So I don't think it was overlooked. I don't think they just forgot to do it. I just think they thought it would hold up on the basis they they uh, that they secured it, but it didn't quite work. So, yeah, yeah, it happened. Definitely, definitely shouldn't. And it caused significant damage uh, to, to two chassis uh, and science. So, yeah, not good enough. But I, I don't think it would be fair to say that they're spending everything on the show and neglecting the circuit because the circuit's a very good achievement. One initial problem, they fixed it, worked well the rest of the weekend. So... Yeah, not completely excusable, but it happened. They fixed it. Okay, let's make sure it doesn't happen again. It's got a question now from Grace for Dirks, who says, I've been listening to your recent Las Vegas episode on the Race F1 podcast, and I'm curious to know your thoughts on a question I've been considering. As an American fan living in the East Coast near Philadelphia, little to no hype about the Las Vegas Grand Prix has permeated my regional sports or media culture. I'm of course seeing quite a bit online, but my audio visual social feeds are already tuned to F1. So my question is, do you think the US is too large and or regionally fractured to foster a real F1 sporting culture? Building on that, do you think F1 is fundamentally misunderstanding American casual sports culture by making this Grand Prix out to be exclusive and one in a million rather than something that invites casual participation? Uh, I... I think the point about the size of the US is is a valid one because let's say just just purely from a ge- a, a, a size point of view, um, if you take Europe for example, you, I can't remember when I was living in the UK, um, I didn't really see much um, uh, sort of hyping up of you know the 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 Hungarian Grand Prix for example or or the Italian Grand Prix in uh you know a british sports culture beyond the 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 small amount i guess it would have got in sort of you where you you have your specialist publications are covering it all the time so it's it's irrelevant right but you you know my lo- local papers or national papers in the uk aren't falling over themselves to preview or to to advertise um a race in in another country but you see when um the 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 circus comes to town and goes to Silverstone. Suddenly, there's lots of there's lots and lots involved. There's local radio, there's local newspapers, national newspapers. It's a massive, massive deal. So it's a little bit more like that, I suppose. Um, where in in the US, it'll be the state that you're in, um, or the specific city, maybe to have it even more sort of arrow arrowed in. The one thing that is different, obviously, is that, and this is where like the US will have that element because I'm I, I'm sure that there is a a, a a good sort of niche F1 community across the US because ultimately there is a shared language which obviously doesn't exist when you look at a, a continent like like Europe. So it's interesting. I, I, I'd probably be interested to hear sort of US fan, US based fans in different places and sort of how many 
you know, contacts that they have? Is there a much of an F1 community across the country and, and, and can it work that way? Do, does everybody, you know, if you're on the East Coast and the West Coast, how do you consume F1? Do you watch it in different ways? Um, do you follow it in different ways? Um, it, does, does everybody on the East Coast and the West Coast um, read Racer magazine? You know, that, that, that kind of thing. It, it'd be interesting to know, actually, sort of where the almost strongholds are in terms of consumption, the, the 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 other point I'd make about the misunderstanding the the American sports culture. I mean, I, I've gone to, and I'm not going to pretend that this means I know loads about U.S. sports, but I've gone to a really a, a decent number now of American sporting events, and some of them have been more expensive than others. I, in my experience, um, the sort of casual interest in uh, an American sport still requires you know a reasonable um, chunk of money. You know, I've got. A, a reasonable interest in in basketball. I'm a, actually a, a Philadelphia 76ers fan, and which is why when I went to Miami um, with you, Ed, do you remember we went? I went I bent over backwards and paid quite a lot of money um, to to be able to go and see the Sixers play uh, the Miami Heat, and I think it was Game Two of the the playoffs because they just happened to coincide with us being in town for for the Grand Prix. But that cost a lot of money, so that kind of accessibility just ultimately different sports and different events are going to cost money to go and attend. And the more exclusive the event, the more money you are going to have to pay to do it. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix, for example, is a once a year opportunity. Whereas you go to a, a different thing, you can watch a, a team in a different sport play once a week or maybe even more often than that. And the question did continue after that. And there's a point about what are our thoughts on how sustainable the spectacle over accessibility model is over the next nine years of the contract? And can F1 bring back fans who might feel like they've checked the GP box already? That's a very difficult question to answer. I don't really know. I suspect they're counting on quite a large number of new fans, as in new fans to this event coming in who saw it on TV and thought that looks great. We'll combine that with a visit to Vegas. Especially but that, as that... it is all about it's all about boosting, you know, awareness and profile and and growing the sport in the States and you, by definition, if you grow, you bring in new fans, don't you? Yeah, exactly. And that's really going to be the, the the proof of the pudding, as it were. A lot of fans came this weekend, but it is the first one and it's got to be sustainable. Most Grand Prix organisers like repeat visitors, people who will just, as soon as next year's tickets go on sale, they'll buy up so they'll get a big chunk sold straight away. We'll see how that works and whether people who came this year want to go again. That That's going to be the key. I think F1's confident, but they just don't know. They they won't be able to know until they start seeing what the ticket sales uh, are like. So, yeah, hopefully it'll work well. If, if it doesn't work, they can just pull out of the contract and then sue themselves. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's that's the way out. If you start to see a monstrous, monstrous pit building for sale on eBay, you know that they're planning something. <laughs> You're interested to see what they do with the pit building. It's meant to be a permanent F1 exhibit they, of some sort, but they haven't worked it out yet. <laughs> no, they they could don't. do... What they what they should do, I think I was saying to you over the weekend, they could set it, have it, have it like the paddock, have a few show garages set up. Here we go. Here's your F1 paddock experience. I mean, it sounds quite mundane to the likes of us, but always remember, it is a fascinating place for people to see. And I think seeing a, they could really do that well. So I hope that's one of the things that's uh, considered. And the final question, which we'll all have a, a stab at, from Philip Wright, who says, taking the entire weekend as a whole, how happy will the organisers be as a score out of ten? I'm going to slightly tweak the question and say how happy should the organisers be because I suspect they'll just give themselves 10 out of 10 based on the, uh, the, the positivity. So what 
rating should they give Scott? What's your rating out of 10 for, for the weekend? Well, actually, I had the same thought as you. I was going to answer the original question 10 out of 10 because they would have just, they'll ignore Thursday and de- just declare it the, a great success. Uh, I think they can, I think they can give themselves a 7 out of 10 because I, I think, I think Thursday was a really big black mark against it. And I think there are some problems around the event. There are some things to solve. I think they need to look at the schedule for next year. They need to look at a few things. One thing I don't think I've said so far on the podcast, I just want to add here, I really didn't like that handling of the podium ceremony. Um, I thought 15, 20 minutes to get from the end of the race to onto the podium is way too long. It saps all of the emotion and everything out of that. And that is one of the great, great moments of the event, just celebration. I don't want to see three drivers get packed into the back of a of a nice car and and and, and then driven away. I, I want to see them celebrating and, and all of that. So yeah, things that I didn't like about it, things that need to be done better. So they should give themselves a seven out of 10. Mark, seven out of 10 for you or are you going with a different number? I, well, I was, I, I was thinking before Scott answered, I was thinking about seven. They should, you know, they should always be... Um, in, in the true spirit of Formula One, they should always be looking to improve. And, um, you know, I was thinking seven is about right, but I can't give the same answer as Scott, so I'll say 6.75. <laughs> Excellent. Well, just to be extra tedious, I also had the number seven in mind, funnily it's enough. It's such a middle of the road. Se- well, not seven literally, is, but it's such a middle of the road answer. Seven is a good number. I think that means they've done they've done well, they've made the race happen. It's worked pretty well overall. There are some things they need to improve. They did have the mishap on Thursday. They did irritate some fans. So there's definitely, yeah, and Scott, of course, most importantly. <laughs> so yeah, that, there are things to improve, but they've done it. This year one has been pulled off. They've created the circuit. They've made it happen. The weekend has been completed, and it felt like a pretty normal Grand Prix weekend on Saturday and Sunday. So that seven for me, there's a lot good in that. Seven out of ten is a good rating. It's just that there's there's still a lot more they can do. So it's a little bit in terms of correcting what problems there were and a little bit in terms of just finessing the event, improving it, working out what worked and what didn't work and what they can do just to make it even more a Vegas extravaganza. And they delivered proof of concept ultimately because this worked as a spectacle and it worked as a sporting event. And the big thing for me, I've said this a couple of times now um, in a video we've done and I think I've written it, written it as well on the, on the website, but the big takeaway from this event will now be the Grand Prix and how good it was. And for any first uh, Grand Prix, any new event, that's a huge, huge win. Yeah, success. Successful 7 out of 10. Can do better, but yeah, good start. Some problems, but good start. And I just keep having to say that because I don't want to sound like... I, I, every time I say something positive, I think I'm just sounding like them saying everything's brilliant. But it it is a, a great achievement to have got this happening. Five years ago, I wouldn't have considered it to be possible to have this kind of race with the race slap bang in the middle of a city like Vegas. So I don't it, think I would have thought it possible two years ago, to be honest. Well, there was a point on Thursday where we didn't think it would be possible <laughs> <laughs> at all this weekend. But uh, no, they got through it. So yeah, seven out of ten. I think uh, we're all very much in agreement there. Well, thanks very much to Scott and Mark for your insight. Head to the race.com. Don't forget the hyphen plenty to read there. Check out our other podcasts, including the Race F1 Tech Show with Gary Anderson, Bring Back V10s, our Formula E IndyCar MotoGP podcast, and also have a look at our YouTube channel. Plenty of videos to watch there. Well, we're shortly going to be packing our bags and heading Abu Dhabi Woods, a very convenient place for the second part of a doubleheader. So stay with us for everything you need to know for the world of F1. The Athletic.
Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.